This is the Veterinary Life Coach Podcast with Dr. Julie Capel, episode number 208. veterinary friends. Thank you for joining me today on the podcast. I have another great interview for you today. It's Dr. Doug Mader, and he is the author of a fairly new book called The Vet at Noah's Ark, Stories of Survival from an Inner City Animal Hospital. He's triple board certified, which is amazing, and he is so much fun. So I hope you enjoy this interview that follows. Before we get into that, I just want to encourage you because it is the new year to make some changes. And if you're feeling stuck or you're feeling like you want to lose some weight or you want to get better at exercising or whatever it is that's on your mind that you've been procrastinating, life coaching is the answer. So reach out to me on my website, sign up for a free coaching session and I will help you get started on any of your goals for this new year. Also on my website, you will find my Wednesday weekly words, so I hope and wish that you would sign up for those. It's a free email that you get every week, um, just basically some words of encouragement. I also have a blog on my website if you enjoy reading, and I put a new blog out there every other week or so. So go to my website, juliecapel.com or veterinarylifecoach.com, and that will get you there. Also, if you have any suggestions for the podcast or you just want to ask me a question, you can reach out at uh, my email. It's jacapeldvm at gmail.com. So don't be shy. Reach out. Let's have a good time this year. I've got a whole list of things that I want to get done, and I want you to get all of your things going as well. Now have a really good time listening to Dr. Doug Mater on the podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to the Veterinary Life Coach Podcast. Today I have an amazing guest for you. It's Dr. Doug Mater. He is the author of a fairly new book called The Vet at Noah's Ark. Stories of Survival from an Inner City Animal Hospital, and he'll tell us about that. He is a triple board certified veterinary specialist, and he's an internationally recognized speaker, and he's written three best-selling medical textbooks. I'm sure you all have heard of him, and he'll tell us more. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Mader. Oh, thank you so much, and, and, and uh, it's quite an honor to be here, and please call me Doug. Oh, I will. I will, for sure. <laughs> But it's great to have you here. So I guess where I start with everyone, especially the veterinarians, is to just kind of tell me your veterinary story as much as you want to share. Um, sure. It goes back quite a ways. I mean, when I was uh, in high school, my primary interest was in becoming a doctor. Um, there was a particular television show on about the, the medical profession and I just thought that would be really cool I'd really like to 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 be a doctor and be able to help people and I love science and then of course being a young male in high school my older sister she used to have horses and she invited me out to her stables one day to help her do some maintenance or something with her horse and the paddocks and 
I went out to this table and I saw, wow, there's a lot of really pretty girls here. And I thought, hey, this is pretty cool. And then when I was there working on her stable or whatever I was doing, I noticed that all the pretty girls weren't paying attention to me. They were all paying attention to this Sanui blacksmith that was shoeing their horses. And, you know, they were just drooling over this muscular young man that was taking care of their horses. And I go, you know, I can do that. So <laughs> at 15, I um, took all my pennies and I moved away and I went to blacksmith college and got certification and got my degree in, in blacksmithing, moved back home and started shoeing horses and, and making good money for back then. And I was pleased because I thoroughly enjoyed working with the horses and I thoroughly enjoyed working with their feet. And I enjoyed the attention it got from all the pretty young ladies, you know, the cowgirls. So it worked. It got you girl it, attention. It worked. <laughs> um, but, but it morphed from there. And what I noticed was when the animals would get sick, of course, they would call the veterinarian out. So the veterinarian would come out and I got to meet the veterinarian and we became friends. And then I started working with him and he'd have these horses that were lame. They had bad feet or arthritis or any number of equine diseases and these horses were on the way to the glue factory and he would get together with me and he'd say hey can you make me a custom shoe to fit this horse and I needed to do this this or this and so I was a fairly well-skilled blacksmith and I'd make these custom shoes for the veterinarian and we put them on and wow these horses that were completely lame could now walk again and go back to being ridden and live a comfortable normal life and I'm thinking this is really cool. And then I said, hey, I don't need to break my back for the rest of my life shoeing horses. I can combine my love for medicine and horses and become a veterinarian. So that's what drove me to becoming a veterinarian. Nice. Right about that time, I was an avid reader. I love to read. Um, somebody gave me, and it might have even been the veterinarian. I don't remember where I got it. A copy of James Harriet's book, All Creatures Great and Small. And I read it and immediately fell in love with it. And I knew that, yep, that's what I wanted to do. I want to be a horse veterinarian and I want to be just like James Harriet. And I'm, I actually learned how to fly through the Air Force back in the early 70s. And so my goal when I got to college was I was going to become an equine veterinarian. I was going to buy a uh, an airplane and then fly from ranch to ranch to ranch and take care of horses. I thought that right. would be my ideal would life. would be a cool life. Yeah. Yeah. And so everything was kind of lining up. All the ducks were facing the right direction. And, and I had it in control. And, and you know, life does things. They th life throws things at you. So one night on the way home from a movie, um, a drunk driver who was underage and was drag racing with a friend lost control of his car and ran me over. Oh. So 11 surgeries and a year later, I wow. did not have the physical strength to work with horses anymore. I just never had the confidence. There is something called horse sense and horses can tell and they can tell if you're not comfortable. And yeah. I never got the comfort level back gotcha. that I had prior to being injured. Wow. Um, during that period, while I was recuperating, I, I, I can't be idle. I'm just not the kind of person that can sit back and be idle. So I started volunteering at the veterinary school in the zoo ward. And the more I did, the more I enjoyed it. And the more I realized, hey, you know, when I was working with these horses, it was always me and the horse. With these zoo animals, you know, it's you, you have a lot of keepers and assistants. And then if they're big and mean and they can eat you, um, we can sedate them. Lots and of so, you know, I can do that without killing my back and my arm. If you ever meet me in person, you'll see, you can just take a look at my arm. I'm covered with 
scars. So I've got about probably five or six feet of scars from all the surgeries I've had. And so that's kind of how I started looking at the, the, the exotic animal world. So the funny thing is, like I said, life, you have to be flexible because the best laid plans, right? You know, life can throw some curveballs at you. Mm -hmm. And I told myself two things when I was, I was uh, in veterinary school. And that is number one, I would never work in small animals. And number two, you would never find me in a city because I was born on an island in the Florida Keys. And then I grew up in Hawaii when my dad went to Vietnam and I was not a city person. And even University of California, Davis, where I went to vet school, is a small agricultural town uh, in the middle of Sacramento Valley. So I am not a city person. So what did I end up doing? Opening up a practice in Los Angeles working in small animals in the city right <laughs> yeah so everything that i said i wasn't going to do i ended up doing but never you know say what? never i'd never say never and, and i wouldn't be here today talking to you if i didn't have that stepping stone along the way right um i've always loved to teach i i've always loved to write um and one thing that i noticed is way back when yeah i've always had this hidden passion for exotic animals, especially the reptiles and the slimy, creepy things. Because having been born in the Florida Keys, my older brother used to take me out to the swamps and we would go hiking through the swamps. And he was really cool. And he would teach me about the snakes and the birds and the worms and everything else that we'd run into in the swamps. And so even though I wanted to be an equine veterinarian, I always had this passion for the, the weird, creepy, slimy oh, things, awesome. right? Mm -hmm. And so I started... Really, even though I was in a dog and cat practice, I started just kind of cultivating the interest and my knowledge base with the exotic pets. And then I started teaching about them because at the time, you know, I think only two veterinary schools in the country even had exotic classes. Uh, yeah, UC Davis, it was rare. And, uh, yeah. Florida, uh, mm -hmm. University of Florida had had exotics courses. Um, and then one thing I noticed when I go to these big conferences and I would speak alongside of some of the icons in veterinary medicine. Uh, they're all boarded in internal medicine or surgery. And I wasn't boarded in anything, um, even though I had done a residency in primate and zoo animal medicine. It was clear that they didn't give me a lot of respect for my knowledge capabilities. So I figured, okay, I want to be a good teacher. If you're going to teach, you've got to know it better than your students do it. And I went ahead and I, I decided to study for my ABVP boards. And back then it was called companion animal medicine or companion animal practice. Right. So I wanted to get board certified so that I could have that specialist credential behind my name. So that when I went out and I gave my lectures or wrote my papers, I would have those credentials. So that kind of brings me up to the, the genesis of the book that I wrote. And it's called the vet at Noah's Ark stories of survival from the inner city animal hospital. And it's, about the year that I decided to apply for and then study for and then take the uh, specialty boards. It also happened to coincide with the year, a very tumultuous year in Los Angeles history. It was the year of the Rodney King riots. Um, and if you're not familiar with that, it was Rodney King was a, a black motorist that was pulled over by some white police officers in Los Angeles. And it was fact um, over a dozen white police officers that had pulled him over. And then they unfortunately beat him, severely beat him. And the whole thing was caught on video. And this was long before the days of social media. So it was actually videotaped by some guy holding a camcorder on his back patio. And then yeah, it was, and it was rare back the, then, right? That we yeah. had video. 
Yeah, and then it was released to the news media. And then, of course, even back then, that went viral. And then the whole country erupted. You, you, I don't know if you remember those days or not. But I do, yeah. Living in, the, living in the inner city around Los Angeles, um, it, was a, it was challenging. And our practice was right on the cusp of the uh, kind of like on, right on the tracks almost, whereas on one side of, our, uh, of the city, one of our clients was the governor of California. I'll give you an idea. And on the other side, we had families coming in that were so poor they could barely afford shoes for their children. Wow. So it was a really interesting dynamic that we had. Um, we had a big map in the hospital of the city and we had lines drawn. Okay, don't go here after sunset and then don't ever cross this line really anytime during the day by yourself. Um, I mean, that's how dangerous it was. And we didn't have a parking lot. So everything was off street or everything was street parking. So the employees, the clients, everybody had to walk from our office to wherever they could find a place to park. So it was, it was quite a challenging place to work. Yeah. And whereas in a lot of veterinary hospitals, you know, the owners or whoever, the first people in the morning, the technicians, and it's a 24 hour hospital come in and turn on the lights, feed the animals. In our hospital, the first thing that the person did in the morning was to go grab the five-gallon bucket of paint and painted the graffiti off the front windows and the doors so that it didn't scare the clients away. Wow, that's crazy. So how long were you there? Like this is where this is where your book is is based, right? In this practice. Right, right. We yeah. we I my partner and I bought the place in uh beginning in 1999. Uh, excuse me, excuse me, I'm sorry, 1989. And uh, I was, I had finished my residency. Um, I had a phenomenal residency with excellent training. And then I got offered a ton of jobs all over the country and the world. Um, and this is back you know, in the mid 80s. And I was offered jobs starting at 100,000 a year. This is in the mid 80s with my training that I had. Um, but I didn't want to go into research uh, I, I like the training that I got. I got phenomenal training because most of the training I received was from MDs because of the primate work that I was doing. Uh, mm -hmm. I was working side by side with human doctors at the Sacramento Medical Center. Um, but I, I didn't want to do that. I, I really wanted, you know, I told you I really wanted to do horse work, but that was kind of off the table by that point. Um, so then I figured I could take those skill sets and, and use them in small animal practice. And I had a very good friend in Southern California who was a small animal veterinarian and he was working for somebody else. And the two of us decided that we would go ahead and, and you know what, let's, let's form a partnership and start our own practice. And so we kind of shopped around and we both love the ocean. We both love Southern California. And so when you're buying a used hospital, it's not like when you go out and buy a new car or a used car, where you have a chance to go to a lot and test drive four or five of them and compare them, you kind of get what you get. And at the time, of course, everything, you know, you'd look in the back of JADMA and one of them really jumped out. It said exotic animal or small animal practice, uh, sees a lot of exotics near the coast, owner ready to retire. So we thought, wow, this sounds perfect. perfect. So we, yeah. I flew, I was in Sacramento. I flew down there that the first weekend we went and looked at it and it was, it was in such a bad part of town that we were afraid to leave his car outside because we thought for sure it would get stolen or vandalized. So, but you know, they always say that some of the best restaurants are in the worst parts of town. So we figured, you know what, let's give it a go. And plus we didn't have a whole lot of money. So we got what we could afford and we made it work. Yeah. Now, 
at that time, were you starting in the exotics? Like, is that how you started that practice? Well, I had done the residency in primate and zoo that? medicine. So I, I had the training in exotics. Right. I had extensive training in exotics. Um, but the, the practice, the guy that owned the practice that we bought, he took a lot of pride in the fact that he was very good with exotics. But him being good with exotics meant he saw maybe one bird or one snake a week. And that was, yeah. compared to most other veterinarians, that was quite a bit. Right. Um, but since the practice had that reputation and that people could bring exotics there, that it was a good starting point for us. So that's kind of where we launched. Um, but, you know, my partner and I were both cut out of the same cloth. And that is we, we both understood that if you want to get someplace in life, you have to work hard. Mm -hmm. And it means investing a lot and also believing in yourself. You know, um, people always want to make a big salary and they want to make a lot of money. But if you want to make money, you have to invest money to make money. And sometimes investing that money means investing in yourself. And if you right. believe in yourself, what better investment can there be? Because if you're successful, you pat yourself on the back. If you fail, you have nobody to blame but yourself. And then, right. you know, somebody who wants to be successful will look at their failures and say, okay, well, what can I do better? And then you fix it. And then you move forward. And then you keep pushing forward. And then eventually you're going to be successful. Yeah. And that in that particular practice, is that the whole premise of the book, that area, like that era? Or well, the premise of the book stories? is the human animal bond. You know, here I've been doing this almost 40 years now. And the reason I get up in the morning is my goal is to promote that human animal bond. Um, I'm sure you have pets. I have pets. And I keep thinking about my, my, my parents, my mother always loved animals. My father absolutely hated animals. <laughs> he was in the military. Um, he was a real badass. I mean, he fought in world war two. He fought in Korea. He had two tours in Nam. He was so disappointed when I didn't go into the army uh, he wanted me to be a soldier like he was. And then yeah. when he found out that I wanted to be a veterinarian, he thought that was just the consummate waste of time and money. You know, really? why would you waste your time and, and energy learning about animals? You know, what a stupid thing to do. And so my father and I didn't get along too well. Um, but that human animal bond is magical. You know that. And I think anybody listening to this podcast knows that. And that's my, that's my, my mom's heart, you know, may she rest in peace. She had this little dog. My dad was always away fighting a war. And I remember growing up really not having much of a dad. He'd come home for a week or two on, on leave. Here's this man that I didn't know that was my father and I was supposed to love him. And he acted like he loved me, although he'd usually just be out drinking. And then he'd be gone again for another six months or a year. And when we'd come home, he'd complain and stupid dog was shedding. The stupid dog needed to be fed. Stupid dog was barking. And there was always that contention because he hated the dogs and he wouldn't let us have pets. Um, I remember I went out and I got a little penny turtle. Do you remember those? Oh, yeah. Ben Franklin yeah. stores and the Crest yeah, stores. And sell these little red this yeah, yeah this I remember big. them. And I never so I got out, to buy I, one, though. My mom would never let me have one. <laughs> well, I, I went out and I bought one. I can't remember how much it cost. It wasn't a penny, but I, I could afford it with my allowance. When he found out I had a, tur a pet turtle, he just was livid because what a waste of time and money, you know. Why would I want to spend my time, you know, taking care of a stupid turtle? Long story short, my mother passed away. And when she passed away, she left her dog with my dad. And by this time, I had moved long since moved away. So it was just the two of them. 
And so by default, he inherited the dog and he kept calling it the stupid dog. He had never used the dog's name. And all of a sudden, that was his only link to my mom was this little dog. And then he started calling me like, you know, the dog did this, the dog did that. Should I be worried? What do I need to do? And so I would tell him and explain things to him. Next thing I know, he would start calling me and telling me happy stories. Like, mm -hmm. hey, I took the I took Kiki to the park today and we walked around. And it's like, I could see this change in him. So here he was about 81, 82 years old. And all of a sudden, that little dog changed his life. Melted and this is heart. a man that always thought I was a disappointment and I never got along with him at all. But the that dog brought us together and at the very end um it was it was pretty sad because he was living in hawaii and the dog got older and eventually and unfortunately the dog developed a mangiosark and not being disrespectful but back then there were no board certified specialists in hawaii and i was living in florida so here i am what five six thousand miles away. away yeah um the dog got very sick. What do I do? He calls me. I call him back, take him to the vet. He takes him to the vet. The vet takes x-rays. Of course, back then, we didn't have digital x-rays. We didn't have email. Um, he sent me the x-rays by FedEx. I looked at him. I could see the massive tumor. I called the vet right up. I said, can you take him to surgery? We, you know, we didn't even have ultrasound back then. Right. So I said, we need to do an exploratory. And he goes, well, I'm just not comfortable doing that. I couldn't fly home and do it because even if i flew all the way back to hawaii the vet didn't have the facilities for me to do the surgery right. and the the dog passed away and iron man my father the badass called me crying had A you ever seen him bond. cry before Never. had you ever seen your dad Never. cry? men don't cry yeah isn't that right? something men don't cry right yeah that's so oh, he cried and he cried and he cried and he cried more when the dog died than when my mom passed away mm-hmm yeah. And uh, it was amazing how something like a little dog can be so profoundly influential in a person's life. And I will never, ever, ever forget that. And I want to do what I can do for the rest of my life to help promote that bond. And in my book, you asked me about the book. I think the book celebrates that. And what's really interesting is for, for your listeners that are familiar with James Harriet and his wonderful series about all creatures, great and small and all the books he wrote. And I look back and I've reread them several times and now PBS has them. They've actually done two series on PBS mm -hmm. and there's a current new one. Yeah, they're they're running. doing a pretty good job on this current one. Oh, it's really good. And mm -hmm. I look at the stories and I watch what happens and I go, you know what? It doesn't matter what side of the pond you're on. It doesn't matter your social background, your cultural background, your race, your uh, religion, anything. That human-animal bond is a language that speaks to everybody and everybody understands it. And again, we have the same issues with our clients and patients that James, James Harriet did 60, 70 years ago. And I, the book really, the book is technically a memoir because I wrote it and it's about a part of my life, but it's really not about me at all. It's written in the first person about a team of very caring veterinary professionals and their staff living in very harsh conditions in the inner city during a very difficult time in the history of Los Angeles and how that team of wonderful people came together to provide care to promote and prolong that human-animal bond. And during, I think that says it all in a nutshell. In that environment. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to be a spoiler, but I mean, we had one of my, my clients, I mean, excuse me, one of my staff members was stabbed uh, working in the overnight shift. I had a staff member that was attacked and stabbed during the Rodney King riots. I had a client that was killed during the Rodney King riots right out in front of my hospital. Um, you know, that's not something they teach you in vet school. No, so, sure. uh, you know, the stories are all real. They're gritty. Um you know, a lot of stories are really funny, have great happy endings, but it is real. And some of the stories aren't so happy and you need a box of Kleenex when you read them. Um, but again, I, I think it really does demonstrate and celebrate that human animal bond. Well, I'll for sure read it. I mean, I got this uh, meeting with you pretty short in a short uh, period of time. So I haven't had time to get the book and read it, but I'm really looking forward to it. It sounds amazing. Thank so you. Working in that first hospital, that LA hospital, what lesson did you learn being the owner of that hospital that you could share with people that are working in vet med now that would help them deal with some of the stress? Because obviously it sounds like a pretty stressful hospital to work in. Um, let's say not a stressful hospital, let's say a stressful environment. Um, I think two things that are very important. Number one, um, respect the human animal bond. And that is my motivation to get up in the morning. That is my motivation to read an article or two before I go to bed at night. Um, and I think that's really important. Veterinary medicine is a lifestyle. Um, I know nowadays a lot of young students are taught work-life balance, and I think that's really important. Um, but you're going to get out of life that you put into it. And if you work hard, you're going to get to play hard. Um, and I, I really feel that having the passion for what you do, if you love what you do, it's not work. You know, they always say that if you really like what you do, you're not, you're not really working. And I think that's true. 40 years into this, and I've certainly seen my share of sadness, I still absolutely love what I do. And I've, I've heard so many people tell me I would never do this again. I'll tell you what, you know, if I had to start over again, I would do exactly the same thing. Yeah. I wouldn't get hit by a car way. again, but mm -hmm. I, I would definitely go back and be a veterinarian again because I, I absolutely love what I do. So number one, I think respecting your team. Um, I wouldn't be where I am. I wouldn't be sitting here talking today if I haven't surrounded myself with wonderful team teammates my whole career. When I say teammates, I'm not just talking about other veterinarians. I'm talking about receptionists. I'm talking about animal caretakers, technicians, um, you know, cleaning staff, janitors, everybody that worked together in that hospital respected each other and worked together. And we were one big family and we looked out for each other. Um, I think we need to respect the clients and understand that they love their pets. Maybe not every one of them can afford the Mercedes treatment, but we still owe it to them to do everything we possibly can to help them prolong that bond. And sometimes it's compromising because we want to give them the Mercedes, but we have to end up giving them the Yugo. Uh, you know, a lot of your readers don't know what that is, or listeners, the Volkswagen. Okay. Um, but I think respecting your, your teammates and respecting the human animal bond is, is extremely important. And then the other thing too is, and this is really important, is I think it's important to understand, Julie, you and I, have probably been walked down this road many times, but for young veterinarians just getting started or anybody in a profession, you know what? You're going to have a bad day. It's going to happen. Yeah. Yep. Half okay? and half. I can guarantee you I it's going to happen. Good days okay? and bad days. 
Right. So the analogy I like to tell people is when you drive your car, hopefully you've got a spare tire in the trunk. Someday you're going to get a flat tire. You need to, you're going to need to change that tire. I would recommend practicing changing that tire on a Saturday afternoon in an empty parking lot on a nice sunny day when you don't have any stress or pressure. Because the first time you get that flat tire in the middle of the night in a rainstorm, all hell's going to break loose and you're going to, you know, you might panic and freak out. Change that tire, get, you know, have that tire in your trunk. You're going to have a bad day. Surround yourself with colleagues that are going to be your support group. Um, have friends. They don't have to be veterinarians. They can be people you have a book club with, people you go to the beach with, people that you hike with. Just surround yourself with friends or family. Be there for them when they need you, and they're going to be there for you. And then when that day comes, and it will, because we all are at some point in our life are going to have a bad day, um, don't be afraid to reach out. Don't be so proud, like, oh, I can handle this by myself. You know, it's okay to say, I've had a bad day. I'm stressed. I'm scared. I don't know what to do. Maybe somebody else has had a similar experience. Even if they haven't, it helps to be able to commiserate with other people or just share your thoughts with them. So having a plan in place, like insurance, hopefully you never, ever yeah. need it. Okay. That's a good way to think about it. Right. Hopefully self, you're never going to need it. Self-care insurance. If you exactly, if you yeah. do, it's nice to know it's there. Yeah. So, again, you know, I could write a book on all the bad days I've had. But <laughs> yeah, why? Why dwell on that? I'd rather a lot, think right? about the positive cases that I've had. You know, yeah. somebody asked me once, you know, how many cases have you treated? I, I really have no idea. In four decades, thousands. And they say, well, you know, how many, you know, how many have you saved? I said, well, hopefully most of them. Uh, well, tell us about the ones you remember. You know what? Sadly, I don't remember all the ones I've saved. I know I've done a good job and saved quite a few animals and prolonged that human-animal bond. But Julie, you know the ones that I remember are the ones, the ones that I that lost. you messed up. Yeah, the yeah. ones that died or the ones that you yeah. It's like then you yeah, beat yourself kind of, up and kind of our human nature, right? We yeah. hang on to that. that yeah. that's you the beat ones yourself that up. You lose sleep for several days. It's like, what could I have done differently? How could I have handled this? Oh my God! Yeah, those are the ones that that haunt you. And, you know, that everybody has their sayings and cliches, but I think one of them is 98% of your, your clients in cases are wonderful. 2% of your clients give you 98% of your headaches. And that's true. But another thing I want to share with you, and you asked me about, you know, how do you handle this? If I'm seeing 30 clients a day, 98% of my clients are great. 2% of them are a pain in the butt. So you figure maybe one client a day, one client every couple of days is going to be that one that takes the wind out of your sails. Yeah. You have to learn how to let it roll off your back because mm -hmm. if you work in a hospital, you're in this room right here. You got the client that's a pain in the ass. We used to call them PIAs, okay, in the records. Yeah. And if the client saw it, they'd say, what's the PIA? And I go, patient important, treat accordingly. <laughs> oh, okay, thank you. You know, not really. Right. Um, so you're in this room here with a client that's a PIA, and then you got to walk four feet away into another room. And now you got a, a young couple with a new puppy starting a new life and a new bond. And that client you just left, you want to kill him. Yeah. Because you're so mad. But you walk four feet away and you've got to be a totally, you got to put on a different game face. Yeah, it's almost so like do, acting, right? You have to be you an do, actor. You do have to, to learn it. To change. It's not acting because acting implies some sort of, to me, some source of falsity, okay? Deception. So when I walk in that room, I am 
sincerely happy for them, but you have right. to be able to flip that, that emotional switch like that. Right. And that can be a challenge at times. And then yeah. you leave that room, right? And then you walk into the next room and it's an older couple with a dying cat and kidney failure that's 20 years old. And then you have to say the final goodbye to them and you don't rush that. You've got to sit there and hold their hand until they're ready. Right. So it's an emotional roller coaster being a uh, veterinarian. MDs don't do that. No, no, no they, they don't. don't at all. No. Yeah, I, I think that's what's so special about this profession, though. And that's why I love it so much. It's so unique and mm -hmm. it's so interesting and it's so fascinating. And you have that privilege to be there at the very beginning when everybody's happy and excited because they have a new puppy. And then you get to be there at the end when it's you're you're helping them that human animal bond. You're helping them feel that bond while they're going through that euthanasia. And I, I really think that that that's kind of magical in a way. And right. And, I, and I think you so just much. you just hit the million dollar word right there when you said it's a privilege. And it is a privilege. Clients can choose any veterinarian that they want, but they come to see you. Mm -hmm. And so that goes back to what I was saying before. When you leave that 2% client, that's a PIA, and you walk next door to the next client, it's a privilege that you get to go in there and be with them and share that human animal bond and be part of that life experience with them. And it's why you've got to learn how to leave those emotions behind that other door so that when you walk into that new door, bam, you're ready to go and be excited with them and help them start that journey. Yeah. So what do you tell veterinary students when you talk to them is the kind of the key to that, like how I know that's why I get into life coaching, because I want to teach people skills to handle those emotions and understand that there's going to be good and bad. And, you know, and you can have all of it and, and still love what you do. What do you tell students that are just starting out that they can do to, ha to handle it better, to create that balance, to create that Love for the bond. One of my favorite sayings is, and, and I, I apply this to myself first, and that is, I don't know enough to know how much I don't know. And here, almost four decades later, I'm still learning. Yeah. And I love to learn. I think the day that I stop learning is the day it's time for me to do something else. Um, and I tell students the same thing. I said, you know, you don't know enough yet to know how much you don't know. <laughs> and so whenever possible, Velcro yourself to somebody with more experience and spend time with them, walk into the room with them. If you're caught up with your clients, you're caught up with your records, hey, go in the room with old Doc Brown, you know, and wow. just listen to his art of his or her art of veterinary medicine on how they handle it. Um, you know, God, you probably never made a mistake, but I've certainly made my share of mistakes. And if what did Rod Stewart say? I wish I knew now what I I, how does he say, I wish I knew now what I did when I was younger or something like that. Right. Right. You know, how I would handle those situations differently, you know? Yeah. And sometimes you luck out and handle them. Right. Sometimes you don't and things go South, but you've learned for the next time. Right. So what I tell my students is, you know what? And, and this is another thing I did too, is I've always had students and part of the book um, every month I have a different student from a different veterinary school. And um, the reader gets to meet these different students and gets to understand how they come from different walks of life. And I always included the students with me, no matter how 
difficult the case would be. And when I say difficult the case, it could be a difficult medical case or it could be one of those 2% clients where the client was difficult. I wanted that student in the room with me so they could see how I handled it. Mm-hmm. You know, And then we would always talk about it after it was over. May not be right away if there's a lot of emotions flying, but at some point we would sit down and we'd say, okay, now we had that interaction with Jane Doe and her husband, John Doe, you know, how would you have handled it differently? What do you think I could have done differently? You know, what if we had done this? What do you think would have happened? And so I do spend a lot of time with the young doctors and the veterinary students and try and incorporate them into my decision-making in process and then explain to them why I made the decisions that I made and how we, you know, and then dissect them. How can we do a post-mortem? How can we make it better? Yeah, I think that that being introspective and retrospective is really important. It it made me laugh when you said listen to the other doctors because when I started at my second practice when I was about three years out of school, I worked with an avian vet and I wanted to do birds. And so I used to when he was in a room, if he was with a client, I used to like lean up against the door with my ear and like because he had a pretty loud voice, and so I could hear. And I oh. learned all his, I learned all his spiel's. Like I learned his nutrition talk. I learned his talk about gout. I learned like just by listening to the way he explained things to the clients. And so I tell the younger vets when they're working, I said, listen to other people, the way they talk to the clients, pick up the little, you know, how do they say goodbye? How do they end the visit? You know, what can you pick up from another vet that will work for you? You don't have to say it verbatim, but you can learn so much from listening to a vet that's older and more experienced and you know, has their little speeches all figured out, you know, like we all have the dermatology speech, you know, bird nutrition or whatever it is, or the, the lizard husbandry or, so I find it interesting that you say that is just to be open to that. I, I feel like, I don't know if this is true, but I feel like in vet school, we're teaching veterinarians that when they get out, they're supposed to know everything and they're supposed to be perfect. And they're, you know, and they're almost afraid to ask for help well that is you know that is true because i remember my very first case with a client because i you know i I did a residency out of school and part of the residency we had to rotate through the clinics and actually see cases too um my very first case was a, a rabbit with a head tilt and uh i was a resident but i had gone to veterinary school at uc davis and I was doing my residency at UC Davis and I had worked um, in the, well, I remember I volunteered in the exotics clinic after my car accident. So I knew the people really well. They knew me really well. Um, my residency was in, in primate and animal medicine. So I spent quite a bit of time in a laboratory facility. So a rabbit with a head tilt, that's a no brainer for me. Okay. I mean, I've got that one, right? So my very, very, very first case even my mentor goes, I don't need to go in the room with you. You just take the students, go in there and work it up. So I walked in the room and at Davis, the clinicians wear full length um, lab coats. The students wear short length lab coats. And that's how you distinguish the the vets from the students. So I'm wearing my full length lab coat and unbuttoned down the front. The students are wearing their little lab coats and I'm walking ahead of them. They're following me like little ducklings. My lab coat's flowing behind me like Superman's cape. And I'm thinking, I'm going to go in there and I'm going to fix this. this rabbit. Right? Yeah. So I walk in the room. It was a young couple. There's a beautiful little Dutch belted rabbit. It was black and white. Again, you never forget the ones that don't <laughs> the work ones out that so don't well. Go well. 
Uh, it was in a little cardboard box sitting on the exam table. I walked in and I realized I proudly said, hi, I am Dr. Mater. I think it was the first time I'd ever said that to a person, a real person, you know? Yeah. And the students were behind me. I introduced the students and they introduced themselves. No, this is Fluffy. I reached over to pet Fluffy on the back of the head. Fluffy screamed. And if you know anything about rabbits, they generally don't scream yeah. and died. Yeah, you don't want that. You don't want to hear that scream. I've heard he it died. before. It's I reached over, good. I pet him between the ears. He screamed, died right oh, in front God. of me. Right that was it. All I did was touch it. Yep. The clients, the look on their face was total shock. I knew what happened right away. I grabbed the rabbit and ran out of the room as fast as I could through the hospital and right back to the ICU ward screaming, code blue, code blue intubated that rabbit, got a catheter in that rabbit, did everything by the textbook, and the rabbit couldn't resuscitate it, it died. Then I had to walk back to the room and I had to tell this young couple that the rabbit had died. And my first thought was, where's the vet? Where's my teacher? Where's my mentor that can go in there and <laughs> help me with this? I'm not supposed to be the one that has to do this. And then I realized, holy crap. It's me. It's me. Yeah. <laughs> You know, and then I noticed that my students weren't even there anymore. They were gone. They were long gone. They didn't want to go in there. <laughs> so <laughs> welcome to veterinary medicine, right? Yeah. But I tell you what, here I am 40 years later and I still love it. You know, that was a hard way to get hard baptism by fire, but uh, I still love what I do. Yeah. So what lessons did you learn from that? Like I, I had some similar things happen to me when I was a young veterinarian and well, it, it what goes kind of lessons to, do you think it teaches? It, it goes back to the happens? comment you made that, you know, we graduate from vet school and we think we know so much and clearly <laughs> we're just barely scratching the surface. And, right. and I think back and I went to vet school at a time when um, animal rights was at the forefront. Uh, especially in California, and they had canceled our senior student surgery or our junior student surgery class. So I had neutered half of a male cat and uh, never got to spay a dog. So when I got out of vet school and went into finally went into private practice, I had one half of a male cat neuter and never a dog spay under my belt. Yeah. Yet here I am, a fully licensed veterinarian. You really don't know a whole lot. So right. what did I learn from that rabbit experience? I learned that A, I need to be more humble. B, I have to realize that life is unpredictable and it can be very unfair. And C, you've got to have, you got to be able to stand back up when you fall off that horse. But I, I had learned that years ago being a rodeo rider. But, um, you know, that's <laughs> just a life, that meta life metaphor. And, uh, you know, you've got to be able to get back up. And, you know, I was lucky because... I was written up by the by those clients. They complained to the, the director of the medical hospital. The chief of staff of the ICU ward sat back and watched me do all my ER stuff with the rabbit. And he never intervened because he said, you had this so under control. He goes, there was nothing I could do other than just get in your way. So right. he went to the director of the, the hospital and said, hey, Dr. Mater did a fantastic job. He didn't do anything wrong. The students came forward and said, yeah, Dr. Mater just pet the rabbit. <laughs> he didn't even handle it. He didn't he even didn't pick even it up. Pick he just it reached up. in and pet it between the ears and it died. He didn't do anything wrong. Right. So, you know, the support. That's what I said earlier, right? The people around me supported me. And if I didn't have that support, if they said, oh, yeah, Dr. Mater mishandled the rabbit or, oh, yeah, he put the catheter in wrong or he gave the wrong epinephrine dose, I probably wouldn't be talking to you today, you know? Yeah, right. Um, but I did have the support that I needed and we were a team. We stuck together and 
yeah, it hurt. I didn't sleep for days. Everybody was talking about it for the next several days in the vet school. Did you hear what happened to that new resident? It's like, holy crap, that new resident was me. I'm the one that killed the rabbit, even though I didn't really do anything. Right, right. Well, and that's what the clients think, right? They think oh, they yeah. killed it, even though it was probably, uh, I'm sure it was dying. One of them are going to pick up my book days. and they're going to read it and they'll go, hey, the guy who wrote this book is the one that killed my rabbit 40 <laughs> years ago. Yeah, that story's in the book. So they may read it. You never know. No, that that one I left out of the book. Yeah. But there are others. Yeah. So how do you how do you tell students to get over that kind of emotional thing? And then, you know, that compassion fatigue, the empathy. You know, I have a lot of people that I that I coach and they have a really hard time telling clients they don't know, or, you know, or when something does go wrong, dealing with that kind of those. Yeah, I, those I think honesty is extremely important. Lies yeah. beget lies. If you make a mistake, tell them. Yeah, um, sure. There's a, again, I don't want to be a spoiler, but there's a story in the book where one of my staff members made a lethal mistake and, you know, I hate to say it, but poo-poo rolls uphill. You don't send the staff member into the room with the clients and, and have the staff member tell them what happened. Right. You go in the room and tell them what happened. And then you're the one who gets yelled at and screamed at and then ultimately sued or taken to the state board, right? Um, so honesty, you have to tell them the truth because if you lie, it's going to come out. Uh, and then it just gets worse and worse and worse. And then you go down that rabbit hole. So honesty is extremely important. Um, how do I deal with it? You know what? You got to find the happy place, you know? And if you don't have one, you need to figure it out. And, you know, my happy place is, are my pets. Um, I love, I love my animals more than you could imagine. And every morning I take them for a beautiful walk on the beach and every evening I take them for a walk down the road at sunset. And I don't care what kind of a day I've had. They don't either. They're happy to see me and they're happy <laughs> yeah, to wag their tail and happy, pee on, right? pee on the mailbox and, and walk down the street and, right. and get to poop on the side of the walk. And then they watch me pick it up. You know I mean? What a great life those animals have. But that makes me happy. I'm with my pets and I can get away from the stress when I take time out and walk, you know, spend time with my pets. And one of the things you'll find interesting is in my book, um, my wife was an emergency room nurse and she worked the graveyard shifts. And of course I worked the daytime. So we really had, like a yin and yang schedule. And it, the, the typical day was I'd be driving home and I would wave out the window to her as she driving past me going to work at night. And in the morning she'd be coming home waving as me as I was leaving for work in the morning. And so my best friend and in the book is my dog, his name was Walk, and he was a chow. And the readers learn all about my inner, inner workings and inner emotions because every night I would take my dog Walk and we would go to the park, we would walk around, then we would sit on our favorite bench and then I would tell Walk about my day. And he always listened. He never passed judgment. He never <laughs> criticized me. Uh, even when I, I killed a patient one day and it was my fault, he didn't look at me and say, I don't want you to be my owner anymore. He said, hey, I still love you. Right. Yeah. And that's what pets do. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he was my happy place. He's what got me through it. And so everybody needs to identify their happy place. And it can be kayaking, it can be jogging, it can be knitting, it can be watching TV. It doesn't matter. But you need to know that if you need that time out, you need to go and, and, and have that personal time, find your happy place, refocus, find your center. And then, you know what? A bad day is just a bad day, Julie. Mm -hmm. It's not your life. Right. It's not your career and you're going to get over it because the next day is a new sunrise and to give you a chance to start over again. Yeah. And I truly believe that. I think sometimes we put too much 
I don't know if it if we just think our job's that important or we just put too much weight into everything that happens in that day. And we mm-hmm. forget we forget that, like you said, very few of the clients are mean. Most of them are super. Yeah. And we forget to notice that. Yeah. 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 So, I, I think you, you brought up a really good point. I, I know we're getting to the end here, but you know, they put too much weight on it. And the reason that they put weight on it is because they care. Mm, if you yeah. didn't care, you'd blow it off. Right. You know, and the fact that it does bother you, that tells me that you're a really good person inside and you really care about what you're doing. And you're probably a damn good veterinarian yeah. because you do have that compassion. And yeah. it's okay to have compassion fatigue. We all do. Everybody does, you know? Yeah. Well, and I think we got to remember that, right? That, that that up and down of emotions that we go through makes us a good vet. Yeah, like if, if we didn't have the human animal bond ourselves, then it wouldn't be, it wouldn't bother us so much. You know, one thing I, I know we're getting again, we're getting close to the end and, and I just want to make a couple quick points. And one is I have been really fortunate in my career. I'm very, very lucky. Um, studying for the boards, getting board certified, it opened up my, my doors and my reputation really grew in Los Angeles, which is easy to do when you got 10 million people living and breathing down your shoulders. Um, <laughs> And I was able to continue on with my studies and continue on with teaching. And, and subsequently, I have been really blessed and I've been invited to travel and teach all around the world. Literally, I've, I've taught in Antarctica, the Arctic Circle. Um, I've been to Europe, every continent. Um, you know, I, I, I have taught in uh, the Galapagos all over. And everywhere I travel, everywhere I meet veterinarians, veterinarians are great people. I know, right? They're I know. Veterinarians are wonderful people. I know, they, they're they, so cool. All, all of us have uh, uh, this innate compassion for all creatures. Mm-hmm. And we're so lucky to be veterinarians. And so I say, I would do it all over again in a heartbeat. I love yeah. what I do. And I love the people that I get to work with and the people I meet meeting you. Yeah. You know, it's just amazing. So yeah. thank you for all you do too, because you really make a big difference. Yeah, I agree with you. And that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. You know, I, I probably have seen you teach. I've probably at some of the conferences I've been to. I'm sure I've been to, I know I've been to some of your lectures. So tell me what your board certified in. I want to make sure I get that. Um, the companion animal. The original right? one was called person. Companion Animal Practice. And then the and name of that got changed exotics. to Dog and Cat Practice uh, right. around mid to late, no, early 2000s. They changed it to Dog and Cat Practice. So I'm board certified in ABVP Companion Animal Practice. Board certified ABVP reptile amphibians because I do a ton of crocodile and sea turtle work. And I'm also board certified in the European College of Zoological Medicine. Okay. Yeah. Because I do a ton of teaching over in Europe. Yeah. Well, congratulations on that. Thank That's you. a lot of work to have that um, certification. It, it, it is work, but again, if you enjoy it, it's not work. Yeah. You know, I, I love it. I love yeah. it. I really do. Well, it's you have that great energy. I love it too. So tell me what I should have asked you that I didn't. What did we miss? Oh boy. We could always get together what, again because I'm sure there's a lot more. I gotta read your book and then I'll have I, you back. So absolutely. That sounds good. Now, everybody always asking what my favorite animal is. Um I went to a lecture last night. It was a birding lecture. And the nice. guy's an ornithologist. He's brilliant. He's a phenomenal photographer. And somebody asked him, said, sir, you know, what, what is your favorite bird to photograph? And he goes, well, I guess you could say I'm a, I'm, 
I sleep around. He goes, my favorite <laughs> bird is whatever I'm, whatever I'm photographing. Whichever one I see right now. Right. right. And I, I guess I'd have to say the same thing. I sleep around. My favorite animal is whatever I happen to be working on because I'm working on it. I get that privilege you talked about of making a difference in that pet's life and that owner's life. Yeah. Um, if, if you had to back me into a corner, I think I've really started to bond with crocodilians and i know that sounds crazy here is a picture of you that someone yeah i'm gonna stop the video and this is my background crocodile yeah look that's at that. my background picture right what there what is with, that uh, like where was that that's up in the everglades and that's one of my clients his name is casper he's 50 and what? i've been treating him for over 20 years that's i do crazy. not recommend that people jump in the, no. the wild pond with a wild no. gator and do that um <laughs> but he knows me and i know him and there's a mutual respect he's huge. um I understand his behavior enough to know when I shouldn't jump in the pond. And he knows that I'm not going to hurt him because yeah. um, we work with all these animals, especially the non-domestics. And we condition them to behaviors like I can do a complete exam with a blood draw on that alligator and not have to worry about getting bitten. Because he's trained. Um, I would never do that to a non-trained animal. Um, but that animal probably weighs 250, 300 pounds and its brain is about the size of the tip of my little <laughs> finger, but they're incredible. Yeah. I mean, we can walk up to a pond and there'll be 15 alligators in there and I can say Casper and he'll pick up his head and he'll hear me and he'll come swimming right over. So they've been around for what, 300 million years? Yeah, I'm 65. I, I don't know that I'll make 300 million years, <laughs> but if I can approach life with the same zest that Casper has, I can continue doing what I love doing for hopefully many more years. Yeah. Well, I hope you do. And I hope you write Thank another you. book. Was this, is this your first, you, I know you've this written is, textbook. Is this this your is first, the first, like, yep. The textbooks are behind book. me now. This is my new life. Um, I'm going to try and be the James Harriet. Yeah, I uh, hope you are. I'm super amazing. humbled that uh, the literary critics are calling this the new, the, the first American, All Creatures Great and Small. Nice. And I do have a series planned. The second one is also in LA and it, it starts when Jurassic Park came out and everybody ran oh. out and bought a pet dinosaur. Yeah. And then the third book um, is when I moved to the Florida Keys and make a whole lifestyle switch. And instead of living in inner city with 10 million people around me, now I live on an island with 2000 people. <laughs> um, and everybody knows everybody and everything about your personal business. But yeah. um, I get to work with sea turtles and crocodiles and the, the, the diminutive key deer, the smallest North American undulate and, you know, and dogs and cats. You know, I'm still boarded in, in canine feline practice. And so I love what I do. That's I'm amazing. lucky. I'm blessed. Yeah. You know? yeah, you're definitely blessed for sure. Well, I appreciate where can um, they get your book? Tell them that. So if somebody um, there plenty of ways, it's available everywhere. Amazon? Uh, all the online bestsellers, uh, online booksellers have it like Amazon, B Dalton Amazon. books, books and books. Um, you can go directly to my website, which is dougmater.com. Easy to remember. And if you go to the website, there's a link there that'll take you to multiple booksellers, or you could buy it directly from the publisher if you want to. Um, Walmart and Target carry it. So it's, it's available all over. Well, congratulations. I'm excited. Thank you. That's Thank really you very fun. much. Well, hopefully we'll get together again and do more of this because this has been great. And I know there's a lot more to your story. So it, when we have more time, I'd like to do another one. If It'll you're be my pleasure. Yeah. And certainly if uh, we run into each other at VMX or one of the big meetings, anywhere, yeah, I'll be there. Um, let's, let's uh, share 
some a chat, awesome. okay? Yeah, that sounds great. Well, thank you so much. This is Dr. Doug Mater, and uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, it's been quite an honor. Have a beautiful week, everyone. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.